Hi everybody, it's Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of lockdown COVID from poverty to power posts. It's the 1st of May, it's May Day, it's a sunny rainy day in the UK. Um, and I've just been doing the numbers every first of every month. I look back and sort of just see what numbers are visiting the blog. And I have to say lockdown is good news for bloggers. People have clearly got nothing else to do. Uh, the numbers re- reading from poverty to power have doubled. Um, and let's just uh, hope it stays that way because it's kind of fun to have the bigger conversation. Anyway, um, <clears throat> let's get on to the week's posts. Start off with the links I liked. And um, uh, I broke the rules this uh, this week. I did a bit of self-citation, which is something which academics tend to like doing, which is quoting yourself and making people go and read your own stuff. And that's because the essay I wrote on, criti- on COVID as a critical juncture um, has been published by Global Policy, and so I just put the link there. But also a link to a webinar. We, I mean, it's the biggest webinar I've done so far. We're all experimenting and learning about these things and spending more and more time on them. I did a Zoom webinar with about 130 participants and three discussants, and it worked remarkably well, I think, very smooth. So um, I'm learning as we go, uh, but that's uh, links I liked. And then um, <clears throat> next post was on social movements uh, and how they're responding to the crisis, how they're writing about the crisis. And we came across a really interesting uh, site called Interface Journal, who do regular roundups of readings by and on social movements. And they do it regionally. So you've got a bunch of links to Asia, a bunch of links to Europe. You've got some global ones. And they're going to keep doing similar roundups um, and have a nice uh, call for people to write and send in things about what social movements are doing around the crisis. Um, So do, if you're involved in grassroots activity and you want to write it up for a a good site, which will disseminate it to other activists around the world, take a look at that. It also very much fits with our own plans. I'm working on a plan to set up kind of listening posts around the world bring together a bunch of institutions to look for emergent agency. So where are new kinds of politics, new kinds of collective action arising in response either to the disease or more likely, I think, in response to the response to the disease, the economic problems that arise or the political clampdowns or whatever. So watch this space. We haven't quite got it all in place yet, but I'll be coming back on that one. The next post was about Bangladesh, or mainly about Bangladesh. Some really interesting research going on in Bangladesh. The BRAC, uh, yeah, the world-famous uh, uh, Bangladeshi NGO, the BRAC, has an Institute for Governance and Development, um, which is part of uh, 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 one of the universities in Dhaka. And they did some really interesting work with Naomi Hussain from the Accountability Research Center at the American University. And I listened in on a webinar um, where they presented some of their work, and I got very excited. What they're doing is um, they're just going out and listening to what people are saying in Bangladesh in 20 communities about the government um, response and about what's going on with with COVID. Um, And I think the way they're doing the research uh, has a lot of lessons for anyone else interested in this. Firstly, there is demand for it. It was actually the government asked them to do it. So... Um, That got me reflecting that what's going on here is that government in Bangladesh, but I think in many countries, have lost their feedback loops. They've lost their ability to know what's going on because they can't leave the office. So if you're a researcher with good relationships and links with with communities, you can actually say, don't worry, we can plug that gap. We can give you feedback from these communities. 
And in the process, we can make sure that the feedback reflects the kind of groups you don't normally hear from, you know, the disabled people or, or, or women or marginalised groups or lower castes or whatever. So you can actually give the government better feedback than it normally gets. So on the webinar, the, the researchers from BRAC and NAMI were, were talking about how they were doing it. And they said the essence is to have rapid, reliable and repeated research. So you need to keep going back every couple of weeks. And if you're going to do that, it has to be quick and dirty. People aren't going to talk to you for hours and hours and hours. So you need to have a quick set of questions which you repeat to find out how the crisis is evolving. You're not going to the communities. You're doing this all on the phone. And you have to have prior relationships. And the prior relationships have to be both between the researchers, so they trust each other and know, you know that they can work together, and between the researchers and communities themselves. They need to have met you in better times and trust you. Um, and they're asking questions like, is lockdown accepted? Who's breaking it? Are the security forces accepted or are they misbehaving? Um, what is top of your concerns? And you know, they found out, not surprisingly, it was food, jobs and aid not arriving. And it was in, for a piece commissioned by BRAC, it was quite or done, being carried out by BRAC. It was quite clear that their feedback were, that they were getting from the communities was that the, end, the big NGOs like BRAC are nowhere to be seen. And there's all much more grassroots local stuff, which is arriving So at the moment. So I thought that was interesting and sort of kudos to Brack for publishing that. So really interesting. You could do that almost anywhere. And, I've, and it does sort of link to, I, I link to an interesting similar piece of work in Senegal. And I think it does also rather sort of resemble some of the work that I've already f highlighted in Cape Town and the rest of South Africa, getting uh, informal settlements to phone in What's the situation with their with their water, with their sanitation, with their waste disposal? So different ways people are trying to plug these feedback loops. I thought was really interesting. The next post was on a uh, an old topic which has suddenly become relevant again. So you know, twenty years ago, Jubilee two thousand was the big campaign, a campaign for massive debt relief for poor countries around the turn of the millennium. Uh, and we're back there now. We're having a Jubilee 2020 moment. And this was a piece by Anna Arendar, who's Oxfam GB's head of inequality campaigns and policy, um, looking at debt relief as one of the uh, components of this big response that's needed for developing countries, um, a, a big global response. So she pointed out that the debt crisis was getting worse long before COVID. A number of countries were getting into that spiral where they were spending more and more on their debt service, their debt interest payments, which left them less and less to spend on, on the important stuff. Ghana was spending 11 times more on its debt service than it was on public health. So that's a, there was a problem already there. But now suddenly with, um, with, with the COVID crisis, um, capitals uh, leaving poor countries, um, their exports are collapsing, um, Oil and gas prices are dropping for the oil and gas producers. Remittances are dropping. There's an enormous cash crunch uh, in, underway in uh, developing countries. And that has led to a sudden, you know, we've got to spend piles more on health just at a time and, and economic sort of support just at a time when our income is dropping. We've got to get a break on debt relief. And there's a big um, global sort of uh, campaign from uh, the countries themselves, backed by some NGOs and others, around and the UN, uh, around the G20 and IMF spring meetings a couple of weeks ago, the IMF and World Bank uh, spring meetings a couple of weeks ago. The UN has been calling for a trillion dollars of, uh, of debt relief. 
Um, but so far, nowhere near. Um, you've had really, really rather small beer um, coming from uh, the G20 agreeing to defer debt payments. Um, the IMF agreeing some debt relief. The World Bank saying, yet no. Um, they they don't they worry that it'll damage their credit rating. I mean, really, in a crisis like this, is that really the thing to be worrying about? So, I think the big fails that Anna Arundel uh, identifies are the World Bank and private debt, where nothing you know a lot of the debt is not held by governments or multilateral institutions, but by um, big institutional investors, and they're not at the table yet either. So there is an enormous way to go to get anywhere near that one trillion dollar figure. There are, of course, lots of questions about were you to allow that yeah were you to get that one trillion dollar in debt relief for developing country governments would they spend it on the right things and that's not a given but unless the money's there they definitely can't spend it on the right things so i think it's you know there's a whole other debate about how that money's going to be spent but first of all let's get yeah but right now at those meetings um the question was can we get that debt relief under in place and uh anna sort of sets out very nicely what still needs to be done and the answer is a lot and then we come to May Day and, I, and we just thought, OK, you know, the weeks are long in lockdown and uh, it's, there's not a lot of fun. So we decided to have some fun on May Day. And this was partly at the suggestion of Pablo Suarez, who's this amazing kind of maverick Argentine um, guy uh, who I've known for a few years, who who just disrupts things. He likes, you know, he gets lots of aid workers to play games and simulations and his latest thing um, is humor so he's even gone and trained as a stand-up comedian to try and understand humor Um, and he's got this lovely piece um, about how we can use humor in the covid response and in particular um, cartoons so he argues that humor keeps us honest it helps bridge the gap between what is and what could be. It kind of introduces dissonance. It carries hard truths into consciousness. And that sounds very theoretical, but he's actually teamed up with a bunch of professional cartoonists and is doing it. He's, um, he's got a lovely quote here. Uh, I'll just read it out. Uh, you probably associate humour with terms like laughter, fun or jokes. No apparent overlap with the dead serious work of managing risks in a pandemic. But when I asked cartoonist Bob Mankoff what he thinks of when thinking about humour, he looked me in the eyes and said, death. Seriously. Here's what professional humorists think of when thinking about humour. Risk, conflict, ambiguity, incongruity, danger. They develop an uncanny ability to notice what is unacceptable yet accepted then create a parallel reality that sheds light on the contradictions, tensions and general ridiculousness of our world. Humour makes the strange familiar and the familiar strange. I love it. I love it. Great writing from Pablo. Um, So what he put... Yeah, okay. So he's put it into practice and one of the ways he's put it into practice is organising cartoonathons for organisations like the Red Red Cross and Red Crescent, universities, foundations... And in these cartoonathons, they kind of limber up with a caption competition. So you put up some existing cartoons and ask people to write captions for them, um, relevant to the topic of the cartoonathon. And, and that acts as a great leveler because, you know, he's had ministers and activists and academics all trying to think, you know, think of good captions. And it means you stop having the, you know, you get away from the big hierarchies because if you come up with a rubbish caption, it doesn't matter who you are. Everyone can see it's rubbish and ditto if it's good. Um, 
He then gets some serious presentations, you know, about whatever the topic is. And he gets two to six cartoonists to listen and not to do one of those kind of visual summaries, but to actually challenge, slightly take the piss, see where the weaknesses are in the arguments and draw them. Um, uh, and, and then, yeah, once they've done that, they look at they then look at what the cartoons cartoonists have come up with. They discuss it and they refine the yeah, they refine the drawings and they come up with some very nice things. And Pablo's piece is completely full of um, examples from his cartoonathons, and some of them are really great. There's a particularly nice one of an Afghan official who said, you know, we we go to the field in order to sort this out. And the cartoonist just thought, yeah, right, and did a, a little quick sketch of a bureaucrat with a desk stuck in a field. And, and so two people saying, we've gone to the field, but it doesn't seem to be making any difference. And that got sort of honed and refined and made more Afghanistan-like with putting mountains in the background. And the result is a really nice cartoon, which really makes the point um, uh, and does that dissonance disruption work that Pablo is looking for. But we thought, OK, that's fine. We've, we've done that and Pablo's piece is great. But let's also have a competition. So we got together 13 of our favourite uh, coronavirus cartoons um, uh, and put them up on the blog and invited people to vote. Um, uh, and our dream is to get the kind of numbers we got for the Coronavision Song Contest, although I think that's highly unlikely because you don't have a sort of cartooning equivalent of Bobby Wine to send thousands of people to vote. But we've got... 13 really nice cartoons, which uh, and we put them into three fairly broad categories. There's a bunch of cartoons on lockdown, working from home. Um, there's a bunch on injustice and politics around the COVID and COVID response. And then just a, a bunch of very random funny ones. Um, I have to say my favourite one is losing at the moment uh, after 50 votes. Uh, it's a really smart, somebody's just done, done taken that self-portrait of Van Gogh and um and then just put the face mask on him but it's falling down because of course he only had one ear um uh it says something about my sixth sense of humor that i think that's hilarious uh, but uh, uh the people do not agree because it's currently losing so have a look at the cartoon competition and see what you think and i'll talk to you again next week have a good weekend bye <laughs>